I was in California, and I was there for, uh, for, for some studies that I'm doing, kind of a doctorate ministry that I'm working on, and um, I, left, I left here when the weather was just getting nice. Spring was just starting here. I fly down to Southern California, palm trees everywhere. This is supposed to be my tropical vacation, 15 degrees and cloudy the whole time. I just could not get away from it. It was so frustrating. But the, the time there was awesome. Halfway through, so um, kind of the weekend between the two weeks, all the first year students were supposed to do a spiritual formation retreat. And none of us really knew what this thing was and, and none of us, to be honest, really wanted to be doing this because we had just spent the whole week previously from morning till, till, till dinner time working on these really big cultural issues like sex and gender and politics and race. Like, like we're solving the major crises in the world. Who needs spiritual formation, right? We're, we're superheroes. This other stuff is child's play. And so we, we and, and you walk in and, and the Institute for Spiritual Formation is um, like the whole, like the campus of, of Biola is the school. Biola's campus is, is stunning. It is, it is, it's beautiful, it's incredible. And then, and then the Institute for Spiritual Formation, for some reason, is exiled to the far south end of the campus. I don't know what they did to deserve this, but they're exiled to the far south end, uh, surrounded by dirt fields and softball field and tennis courts, and they meet in these portable trailers. I think we've got a, I think we've got a picture there. And the whole campus, stunningly beautiful, Institute for Spiritual Formation, portable trailer, south end of the campus. And you, we walk into the one where we're doing this thing, and it's like you've been transported. You've been, you've been the time machine back to 1982. Like the, the decor, the seating, the books on the shelves, everything was like hardcore 1980s conservative Christianity. And I, I'll say this about the professor who was leading it. I, you know, after two days with him, loved him, such a high regard for him, but initially some pretty strong Mr. Rogers vibes going on. So the whole thing, like for, again, for people who were like spending this whole week doing this hardcore cultural analysis, all of this felt a little bit unimpressive, you know? But for, for those two days, this professor talking about issues of the heart and spiritual formation just nailed me to the wall without knowing it. Just spoke so many things that were so, so real, so deep, so personal. I'm, I'm still kind of working through a lot of what I heard while I was there. But, uh, but, but I'll just, I'll say that, and I'll explain why later on. A little cliffhanger, if 20 minutes through the sermon, you're kind of getting bored and you're like, oh yeah, he's gonna talk about something again later. A cliffhanger there, I'm gonna come back to it, but I'll say that there was a verse that ended up becoming a, a kind of a mantra for me, something that I was repeating over and over again. Psalm 73, verse 25, whom do I have in heaven but you? And nothing, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Just everything else in this world, everything in my life, is um, it's fleeting, it's vulnerable to failure. All I've got is you, Lord. That's what, that's what a man named Asaph in the Bible came to realize as well. He was uh, kind of under, under David, somebody who was in charge of the worship in the temple, the singing in the temple. He wrote a number of Psalms, I think 12 Psalms in the Bible. Today we're gonna look at one of them. It's Psalm 73. And if you've got your Bible, you can open it up there. I tell you that it's on page 532. I don't think that would help you very much, but that's where it is on my Bible, just in case you were wondering. Psalm 73, verses one to three. Let's just start there. Asaph says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So verse one is, this is his, this is his doctrine. This is his confession of faith. This is what he says he believes absolutely that God is good. That he's good to Israel. He's good to those whose hearts belong to him. Right? That that's how people receive him whose hearts belong to him. He's, he's good. And, and this is fundamental to biblical faith from the beginning. That the goodness of God. I just read this great little book called Delighting in the Trinity. And um, helped, helped give me some new insights in terms of how God is three and yet one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But one of the things that really stood out to me was how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity past. Uh, there was never a time when, when God was not in perfect communion. And what that means is that there was never a time when God, was, when, when God the Father was not Father, when he was not pouring out his love, sharing that love, God the Father has always, always been Father versus, let's say, Islam, where you would have a, a single person God, you could, you could say, where for quite a period of time, I guess, there was, there was no sharing of that love. The biblical God is in very nature loving. There's never been a time when he wasn't uh, sharing that love. See, God is good. Fundamentally, by nature, inherently, he is good. But Asaph looks around at the world, and he says, my experience of the world didn't fit my belief, my confession of faith. He looked around the world, and he saw wicked people doing really, really well. People who did not love God, who weren't seeking to obey God, and they seemed to be doing quite fine in this life. And so Asaph says, my, my feet had almost slipped. I'd almost lost faith because my faith didn't match up with my experience of the world. Have you ever been there before? I mean, that, that's, that's where crises of faith come. When our belief doesn't line up with what we're actually experiencing in the world. For example, you may believe the promise of Jesus in Matthew 28 that he is with his people always to the very end of the age. You might believe when the Bible tells you that every follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit, is filled with his presence, and yet you may go through a dry season. You may go through, through a dark night of the soul, a desert where he just seems absent, where he seems silent. Your belief and your experience aren't matching up. So what do you do about that when that crisis of faith, when that doubt hits? Well, what Asaph did about it was that he laid it all out before God. He told God about it. This is what he says, starting in verse four. Talks about these, these wicked people. He says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. 
Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. So here's Asaph just laying it out, saying, God, this is what I see. This is what I'm experiencing. These, these wicked, violent, oppressive, arrogant, deceitful people, and they're healthy. They're strong. They don't, they don't seem to have any struggles. They're just floating on clouds. And they don't even have any concern for God whatsoever. Right? They're, they're, why would they need God? Look at how well they're doing. Either God doesn't exist, or he doesn't care how they live, or maybe they've just surpassed God in their own strength. God couldn't do anything about it, even if he wanted to. They're, they're doing great. They're amassing wealth and possessions and everything. And so Asaph looks at this, and he confesses that two different thoughts had gone through his mind. He admits two things. One thing he says in, back in verse 3, he says that he, or, or verse 2, that he had envied them. He looked at what they had, and he said, I wish that I could have that. I wish that I could live that way. Have you ever been there? Where, where you see, and it doesn't have to be like, oh, I, I, wish, uh, I, I wish that I was like a murderous psychophant like them, you know? I, I wish that I could live that way. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be like that. It could, it could simply be that, that you look at people and you think, I deserve what they have more than they do. I was gonna say, by the way, that, that this whole dynamic of looking around and seeing these wicked, that's not like a 3,000-year-old-ago problem, right? Like, we see that in the world today. And when you, when you think about the list of 20th century dictators, um, a lot of them never really faced the music. A lot of them died still in power, still with, with wealth. Joseph Stalin, he killed 20 million people and, and yet died in his 70s, still in power, the guy controlled like 10% of his country's uh, financial resources, like $8.5 trillion was kind of his personal kind of piggy bank, which is, which is roughly the amount of money that an average NBA player is making these days, apparently. Uh, Kim, Song, uh, Kim Il-sung, first leader of North Korea, uh, apparently is still the, the president of North Korea for eternity, even in his death. That's what they, I mean, when you hear... North Korea say things. It really seems sometimes like they're living in an alternate reality, right? Like it's like, I don't think this is how things work, but this is what they say. No, he's still our leader forever and ever. He's still revered by his people. I think they've been fed a lie, maybe a few of them, but he's still revered by his people despite having probably been responsible for a million or so deaths. And, and we see it in movies too, right? We see people who are living large, taking advantage of other, of other people, cheating and stealing and making massive amounts of money. I think about the Wolf of, of Wall Street, that Leo DiCaprio movie years ago, where he's driving the fast cars with the hot girls, and he's just he's living the life for a long period of time. And, and so again, Asaph looks at all this, and he says, I, I actually envied them. I saw what they had, and I wish that I had it. And like I said, it, it doesn't have to be that you wish that you could be like the Leo DiCaprio figure in that movie, but just, just that you see somebody and you think, I deserve what they have more than they do. Um, I love basketball, always have. Uh, I love playing it, love watching it. Um, I went to a, a very large public high school in Calgary, Alberta, and I, uh, I tried out for the basketball team. I was a very... I was a very, very skinny kid. I was way skinnier than I am now, which is saying something. Uh, 
I was t- I, and I was very, very insecure, but I had some natural athletic skill. I love basketball, so I tried out for the team. I, I didn't even make it past the, the first cut. Uh, not, not even close. In, on the Canadian prairies, where, where basketball ranks just slightly below curling in terms of popularity, I didn't make the high school basketball team. Now, of course, I later went on to become the greatest basketball player of all time. I won six NBA championships. Uh, movies have been made about me. Some of you are wearing my shoes and all likelihood. That's the way it's supposed to go, right? But in fact, in grade 12, I tried out again. I got cut again. I played college basketball at a tiny little Bible college where we lost our first game by 100 points. And we didn't have, even have enough guys to have a team my second year. So that's my basketball career. But going back to grade 10, I get cut. And I, like, I love basketball so much. I played every waking minute. And I see these other guys who made the team because they were like way bigger, way taller, way more confident in themselves. And they didn't even like basketball. They didn't even like it, but they made the team. And they, you know, they had the girls and the recognition and the fame. In a, in a little high, in a high school in Calgary, but still. And I'm looking at that, I'm like, I deserve this more than you. I actually like this sport. I actually want to be playing on the team. And it drove me crazy, right? That, that envy of saying, my character in this sense, in terms of love for basketball, is superior to yours, and yet you're, you're getting what I think I should actually deserve. Have you been there before? Probably have. The second thing the psalmist, uh, the Asaph, admits is, is later on in verse 13 and 14 where he says, maybe it was all in vain that I tried to be faithful to God, that I tried to do what is good, that I tried to maintain purity and innocence. Maybe, maybe it wasn't actually worth it. I, I love this about the Bible. The Bible is God's inspired word, Holy Spirit breathed, authoritative word through human servants and yet the Bible is not unafraid of giving voice to all the deepest, darkest doubts and emotions and feelings in the human heart, right? Like, like even to the, to the point of Asaph saying, I, I wondered if I had done all of that in vain and if I had been better off seeking a career as a murderous tyrant. I wonder if that would have been better, actually. And Asaph isn't alone in this, in the scriptures, I mean, you can think about the, uh, the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah. Jeremiah, as a prophet, faithfully spoke what God gave him to speak. He was faithful in relaying that. But what he was given to speak wasn't, wasn't like feel-good Tony Robbins self-help stuff. What he was given to speak was a message of warning, saying to the people of Israel, you have been chasing after other idols, you have been living contrary to God's character and his will. And so the, the impending result is going to be destruction. It's going to be exile unless, unless you turn from that. So, so this was Jeremiah's message. People did not celebrate it. They didn't throw flowers at his feet. They didn't throw parades for him. In, instead, Jeremiah says that, that, that the word of God was like a fire in his bones. He had to get it out. He didn't have a choice. But he says, whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. And so, because of that, the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. It's like, thanks a lot, God. I'm giving you exact, I'm telling people exactly what you tell me to say, and all I'm getting is insult and reproach. He says uh, a few chapters earlier, 
You're always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. That's the confession of faith. Here's, here's the experience. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You see, sometimes when we pray, we come to God and we think that we need to kind of cover up all of that ugly, dark stuff that we know resides in our hearts and we have to convert it all to King James, right? Like, we have to pray in King James. We have to pray these, these pious-sounding words. We have to, uh, we have to sanitize our, our thoughts and our prayers when we come to God, but that's actually not what we see in the Scriptures. It's actually not what we see in the Psalms. What we see is rawness, what we see is that prayer looks like bringing all of that stuff out before God and saying to God, here's what's in my heart. And I know it's not right and I know it's not good and I need you to correct it, but here it is. Here's what's inside of me. That's what Asaph does here. And, and can I just encourage you, if you are now or if you will be at some point encountering a crisis of faith, where your heart is, is just rent in half because of what you believe and what you experience aren't matching up, bring that to God. Don't hide it. Don't cover it up before the Lord. Bring it out. Wrestle with him about that. Because this is what happens when you're willing to actually wrestle with him about these things is that he does give you perspective. He doesn't, he doesn't answer every question, right? We see that with Job. Job demands an answer. God's like, I'm not gonna give it to you. But he gives him perspective. He gives him what he needs to continue on in faithfulness. And, and that's what we see in this, this next section here. We get, we get the resolution to this. Asaph wrestled with this. He struggled with this. Verse 15, here's what we read. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to, and by the way, I don't think that, that, that's not like, I mean, Asaph obviously wrestled with that with God. What he means is that he didn't teach his doubts. He didn't say, this is how it is. It's in vain that you try to serve God. Go and be a tyrant. It's great. He didn't say that to the congregation. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and, in, and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So Asaph says he's gained perspective. 
He, he's, to some extent, it's, it's been resolved. And, and let's take a look, first of all, where that perspective has come from. What has Asaph done to get that? We've already talked about his honesty, his brutal, raw honesty with God in prayer. That's huge. He also talks about, in, in verse 15, he talks about his connection with the people of God. He says that if he had spoken out like this, he would have betrayed God's children. See, Asaph was aware that that his actions weren't just in a vacuum, but that they had an impact on others of God's people, on, on brothers and sisters. And this is quite countercultural in our own day. On Tuesday, last Tuesday at Bridge Adult Summer School, session one, uh, we talked about expressive individualism which is, is kind of the spirit of our age, the, the age, the, the zeitgeist of our times, this idea that for you to find your true self, you have to look within yourself. You know, you, you shouldn't be going to external voices or authorities. You just, you just have to find yourself by looking within. And I, I asked for examples of this in our culture, and somebody was like, movies! And I was like, well, which of them? And they were like, all of them! I said, no, let's get specific. And they were like, well, Disney movies! I was like, come on! We can get even more specific than that. And we finally settled on Frozen. Frozen is the epitome of expressive individualism. I haven't watched the movie, but I've read the lyrics of the song it's like, I'm going to do me. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm going to do me. I'm going to be me. Princess Elsa, that's the way. Expressive individualism right there, right? Like no need, no need for time-tested tradition or communities or anything like that. Just figure this out on your own. And the upshot of that for faith is that when you are going through a faith crisis of various kinds, you just need to figure it out on your own. You don't, don't go to other people. You don't go to the, the saints of ages past. You just kind of figure it out on, on your own, right? And as a result, people are struggling through these crises, these doubts, and they don't have the necessary resources to help them endure. And, 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 and it's easier for them to disconnect entirely from the people of God in the midst of those doubts because they don't have that connection. See, for Asaph, that wasn't an option. He was deeply connected to the people of God. And so these were people that he could go to. These were people that, you know, you've got, you've got wiser, more mature believers you can, you can go to. And he's again aware that what he does in his relationship with God is going to make an impact on, on others. And so that, that keeps him closely connected even as he's going through the struggle. The biggest, the biggest tragedy isn't when people encounter doubt. Doubt can be a means of strengthening in faith. The crisis, the tragedy, is when people try to endure that on their own without going to anybody, without going to a, a pastor, a, a mentor, a leader, a mature believer of some kind. So that was one thing Asaph had going for him in terms of getting perspective. The other thing, he says in verse 17 that he entered the sanctuary of God. This was... This was where he received revelation from God when he entered the sanctuary. Now that's probably a reference to the temple in Jerusalem. This was the place where, uh, where sacrifices were offered for the forgiveness of sins. It's where public praise would have happened. It's where people would have come together to remember who God is and, and what he had done. They would have heard the scriptures. They would have had teaching about the scriptures. And so it's when he enters the temple that he receives this revelation to help him in, in this, 
in these, in these doubts. And actually you see that fairly often in the scriptures that worship becomes the arena where revelation from God comes through. In Acts chapter 10, you've got uh, the Roman centurion Cornelius who appears to be praying when he receives a vision sending him to, uh, to Peter. Around the same time, Peter is on a rooftop, he's praying, and he receives a vision indicating that the old Jewish food laws are no longer relevant in light of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which paves the way for him to preach in Cornelius' home, which in turn opens up the Gentile mission. So here's God kind of revealing something new through worship. You've got Revelation 1, where the elderly disciple John is, is exiled on the rocky island of Patmos because of his preaching about Jesus. That's what they did to elderly preachers in those days. Just send him off to a rocky island. Do no more harm over there. And he's over there and he's, he's worshiping the Lord in the spirit on the Lord's day. And that's where he receives this, this vision of Jesus that enables him and enables us to endure through the crises that we face in the world. Worship is where we receive revelation because it's, it's opening up space for God to speak. We're taking our eyes off ourselves, our, our problems, we're bringing them to the Lord and, and here the Lord can finally speak. We've quieted ourselves before him. So if you're going through a crisis, that would be the question is if you're doing what Asaph did are you bringing this stuff before the Lord in raw honesty? Are you staying connected with God's people? Are you, are you finding people that you can wrestle with this stuff together? Are, are, you, are, are, you, are you making space for God to speak to you through worship? Because if you're trying to handle this on your own, you're trying to cover it up, you're trying to ignore it, it's not gonna go well. But if you wrestle with this, stay connected, worship the Lord, insight comes. And that, that's what happens for Asaph. He, he receives insight in this, in this crisis of faith he's having. And it comes in kind of in two different, two different related insights. So the first one, he says in this passage that he understood their final destiny. No matter what it looked like at the moment in the world, no matter what it looked like for these wicked people, Asaph said, I understood finally where they would end up. He says that their foundation was slippery. The ground was slippery. They had built their lives on something other than the, create, the, the, the creator, the eternal almighty God. They had built their lives on created things that inevitably crumble. And as a result, they themselves would fail. Sometimes this can happen really, really quickly, where it looks like somebody is solid and all of a sudden the ground is gone. A uh, contemporary example would be Harvey Weinstein. Some of you know that, that story. This guy was a Hollywood producer, one of the most powerful men in the business. At his peak, had a net worth of something like $300 million. Um, for 40 years, he kind of uh, reigned at kind of the top of the business. And then all of a sudden, in one month, this was a bad month for him. One month, October 2017, 70 different women brought allegations of sexual assault against him. 70 women, dating back 40 years. So for 40 years, this guy had had been the kind of person that Asaph talks about in the first part of this psalm. The kind of guy who's just floating along, no troubles, rich and powerful, despite the wickedness. And then in one month, it all fell to pieces. 
And now he'll spend the rest of his life in, in prison. So the foundations of those who have, who have based their lives on something created, it's, it's, un, it's unstable. It's inherently unstable. There's, uh, there's a book, great book by Australian pastor Mark Sayers that our leadership team is, is reading. And there's this line in this book that I just keep on coming back to in context like this. Uh, Mark Sayers says that God has inserted a Babel-like kill switch inside of human endeavors without him. That nothing and no one can truly advance a program of renewal without his presence. A Babel-like kill switch. Babel, if you're not familiar, is the tower in Genesis 11 that a group of people build. They, they want to make a name for themselves. They want to be like divine. They want people to kind of bow down and worship them. And God sees this happening and, he, and he, he confuses their languages, scatters them. The project is disbanded. They're trying to do something apart from God. It's, there's like this Babel-like kill switch inserted in all of those kinds of things. And, and, and it happens in this world. It happens in this world. And sometimes it, it takes generations. Sometimes it, you know, like Kim Il-sung, he, he died in peace in his 1980s, died in his sleep, and his, his grandson, his grandson still, uh, still rules North Korea. But does anyone actually think that North Korea is destined for eternal world domination? I don't think so. I don't think they're headed for world domination of any kind, to be honest. That, that, that foundation will crumble. It just, it's, it's inevitable. And we could take that and we can actually extend it to eternity. That, that people who are determined to live their lives based on their own glory, based on a love for created things as their ultimate allegiance, that are based on separating themselves from God and saying, I'm gonna live however I want, I don't need God. That God will grant them that for eternity that that foundation is unstable and it, it will not last in, in eternity. So Paul in, in, uh, in 2 Thessalonians, in difficult but, but true words, talks about people like that. He says that they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. It's like the psalmist says, he understood their final destiny, that when you live this way, even if you prosper in this life, even if you die and you pass on your ill-gotten gains to your, to your descendants, there is an eternity to pay for that. That foundation will not last for eternity. And this is, by the way, why we can live at peace in this world without feeling like we need to make all of these wrongs right, where, where we need to get vengeance on the wicked because actually we, we don't bear that burden. We entrust that to the Lord. So Paul says in Romans 12, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this is why you can love your enemies. 
because you trust that God will take care of justice however he sees best. It's why you don't need to envy the wicked because appearances are not an indication of what eternity is going to look like. You entrust that to the Lord. So this is Asaph's first insight, is that regardless of what it looks like right now, he realizes that it's all about where your foundation is. And in the end, those foundations will be shown for what they are. The second insight that he has, the deeper one is related to this, which is to do with his own foundations, his greatest desire. And this is where we get that verse, verse 25 that I mentioned before, where he says that I've got nothing in heaven, but you and earth has nothing I desire besides you. For Asaph, what's, what's his drive in life? What's his purpose? What's his highest goal? It's not wealth. It's not health. It's not ease. It's not success. It's not status and recognition in the world. It is the presence of God. That's what he's after. He says, but as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. This is the foundation of his life, not some created thing, but the creator. He knows that where everything else is vulnerable to failure, and he sees it now, he sees it in the world, everything is vulnerable to failure. But God will not fail him. Amen. And a life that is built on and centered around God cannot fail Amen. because he won't fail. Yeah. Now you might hear what Asaph says here where he says, I got nothing in heaven, nothing on earth I desire besides you. And you might protest. You might say, well, I, I mean, I think I do. I've got, you know, maybe, maybe you say, well, I have a spouse or I, I have children or I have a pet, you know, or I've got a great job. I've got a good home. I, I live in this beautiful place. I've got friends who stuck with me through thick and thin. I'm strong, I'm healthy. So maybe Asaph was just a loser, you know? Maybe he was just a loner. Maybe he just didn't have anything going for him. And you're like, well, that's too bad for him, but I'm not like that. So this is irrelevant to me. I don't think it's that Asaph had no meaningful relationships in his life. I think it's just that he realized that all created things, including relationships with other human beings, that all of those in the end were vulnerable to crumbling, to falling. Marriages can become strained and broken. Friends who you thought would have your back always suddenly turn around. They betray you in some way, leave you heartbroken. Jobs can be lost. Houses can burn down. Children may go astray, spit in your face figuratively, hopefully not literally. You know, you, you can become sick. You might feel healthy and strong right now, but all of a sudden something happens and you feel like you've aged 20 years overnight. And you yourself may do this to other people. You know, somebody might be counting on you and, and you'll fail them. You'll let them down because you're vulnerable to this too. Just across the board. Whatever you think, well, this person or this thing has never let me down, they might. Created things are vulnerable to this. And that's why Asaph ends up saying, it's not that, it's not that I don't have any re 
relationships in my life. It's just that ultimately, God alone is the foundation. He alone is worthy of my full trust. And this is what, this is what I came to realize uh, that second week in California. So, I mean, it was crazy, right? Because I was down there for this like hardcore intellectual exercise, but all of a sudden, it's just, it's my heart that is being deeply, deeply pierced. And, and what ends up happening is, is that I, I get sent, I, I, I get kind of set off by God on this week-long deep dive analysis of all the kind of disappointment and rejection and pain in, in my life that I had been kind of covering up. All of a sudden, it's all, it's all coming out. And uh, my, this, this professor, he had told me that when, well, he was exactly my age when, when he had kind of had this, I don't know, um, whatever you want to call it, this crisis, I guess, that gave rise to, to growth. And he said one of the things that he was told to do, for him it was his mother. He had a very difficult relationship with his mother. And, and so he would just imagine his mother across from him and he would just like have it out with his imagined mother, you know, like bringing out all the stuff that he had kind of kept inside, bringing it out before her in the presence of God. And so I, I took this and I, and I did this. I, I, I went to the softball field close by and pretty much every, every moment, like for hours, for days to come, I would go there and I'd sit on the bench and uh, I, would, I would put people on the bench and I would just have it out with them, you know? Like I never, I almost never argue with people in real life. So there's a lot of stuff that gets stuffed down. And man, they got an earful, I'm telling you. I said things I would never say to them in, in, in real life, but man, I said it to them, I, I just, and I did it in the presence of God. I just said to God, look, God, I, I don't like this, but this is all the stuff I think and I feel about this person, and I'm, so I'm bringing all this stuff out like for days, and, and man, the, the, initial, the initial result of it was this deep, deep feeling of despair because you, you're just looking at your life, and you're like, man, like everybody's failed me. I'm sorry to, to break this to you guys. You know, I mean, you're like, I thought, I, I thought, I, I thought we were good, Craig. Everybody's failed me. No. I just, you're just realizing this, this, the despair that like, like everything falters. And um, I, I was really, I was with the author of Ecclesiastes fully. Like everything is fleeting, everything's meaningless. It's just all a vapor. And, and so this like deep, like actually this kind of deep despair where everything gets, gets, gets laid out and stripped bare. But then uh, into that darkness was kind of like this, this light that shone into it. And it was, this, it was that verse. It was verse 25. It was just like, all right. I, I got, and, and God was part of that picture too. I mean, I, I brought up the stuff that, God, I'm disappointed. I'm angry about this and this and this that you didn't do. You didn't answer it here. I'm bringing that all out too. But in the end, just going, okay, God, like in the end, it's gotta be you. There's nothing else. And I had this thought as well. I've sometimes wondered in those in that rejection, in that pain, in relationships that were disappointing, I wondered, where was God in that? Because he seemed, he did seem silent. He did seem absent. So where was God in those moments? And one night, uh, so like this is like a number of days after that spiritual re formation retreat, I'm sitting on the lawn at Biola and, and I'm looking at this. This is the chapel there. And I'm just sitting on the lawn and I'm looking at the chapel. I'm looking at that giant golden cross that's just above the doors. And all of a sudden, it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. Where, where has God been in, in all of this, this disappointment? And it was like, well, right, right there, that's where he was. 
He wasn't absent. But the Son of God actually entered into the depth of human rejection and disappointment. That the Son of God, sinless, righteous, pure, he was, I mean, he was betrayed by one of his disciples. One of his closest disciples denied even knowing him. He was spit on, he was mocked, he was assaulted. I mean, Jesus experienced the worst that humanity had to offer. And I realized that Jesus died for my sins, the sins I commit, but he also died for the sins that have been committed against me. That, that Jesus took my place as a sinner worthy of condemnation. He took my place but he also took my place as one who has been rejected. I think as all of us have been. Jesus took our place in every way. And that's why, that's why a relationship with him alone is worthy of, of, of building a life on. Because he went to the very end. He went to the very length, to the very extent, and he was faithful all the way. His love for you and for I was so great that he went to death on a cross for us. He did what nobody else would have done. That's why we could say he, he doesn't fail. He was faithful right to the grave and beyond. So I don't, I don't know where you're at this morning. I, uh, I think we tend to put a lot of weight a lot of weight of expectation on human relationships. And, and those human relationships, as good as they are, they can't actually bear the weight of that expectation. And created things as a whole can't actually bear the weight of that expectation. And so I encourage you, before, before it's too late, if you're building your foundation on created things or on human relationships be, before the whole thing crumbles and you're destroyed, to turn to the Lord and to base your life on him. It's not that when you do that, you say goodbye to all of those other relationships. It's that they find their proper and right place in relationship to Jesus. So let's, uh, let's pray and then let's continue on in worship. Along with Asaph, Lord, we we proclaim that ultimately there is nothing, nothing in heaven and on earth that we desire but you. And perhaps we can't say that yet, but we, we would say that we want that to be true. And I thank you, Jesus, that you are worthy you are worthy of that. I thank you. I thank you that when we do place our foundation on you rather than on health and wealth and success and ease and whatever else, 
sexual fulfillment, money, whatever it is, when we place our foundation on you, that you will take care of all of that other stuff. That we can trust you, Lord. You will give us everything that we need. It all comes through you. It all comes in you. All things have been made through you and for you. All things are held together in you. You are Lord over heaven and earth. So why why do we worry when other people seem to be getting what we want and we think we deserve it more? Lord, we, we say, yeah, we confess that that's true of our hearts. But why do we worry about that? Everything we need comes in you, comes through you. So today, can I just encourage you in your hearts to take whatever it is that you're building your foundation on those things you are placing the weight of your expectations on. And can I just encourage you now, just, just for a moment, speak that to the Lord. Just, just in your heart, speak that to the Lord. Confess to him, this, this is what it is. of your life in a way that nothing else is. That he alone can bear the weight of your life. And speak that to him as well. <laughs> 